Section 7 of A Woman's Journey Round the World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Woman's Journey Round the World by Ida Laura Pfeiffer. Chapter 4 Journey into the Interior of the Brazils. Part 2. 9th of October. Early in the morning, I took leave of my kind hostess, who, like a true careful housewife, had wrapped up a roasted fowl, maniac flour, and a cheese for me, so that I was well provisioned on setting off. The next station, Aldeia do Pedro, on the banks of the Paraibi, was situated at a distance of sixteen miles. Our way lay through magnificent woods, and before we had traversed half of it, we arrived at the river Paraibi, one of the largest in the Brazils, and celebrated, moreover, for the peculiar character of its bed, which is strewed with innumerable cliffs and rocks. These, owing to the low state of the stream, were more than usually conspicuous. On every side rose little islands, covered with small trees or underwood, lending a most magic appearance to the river. During the rainy season, most of these cliffs and rocks are covered with water, and the river then appears more majestic. On account of the rocks, it can only be navigated by small boats and rafts. As you proceed along the banks, the scenery gradually changes. The forepart of the mountain ranges subside into low hills, the mountains themselves retreat, and the nearer you approach Aldeia do Pedro, the wider and more open becomes the valley. In the background alone are still visible splendid mountain ranges, from which rises a mountain higher than the rest, somewhat more naked, and almost isolated. To this my guide pointed and gave me to understand that our way lay over it, in order to reach the Puris who live beyond. About noon I arrived at Aldeia do Pedro, which I found to be a small village with a stone church. The latter might, perhaps, contain two hundred persons. I had intended continuing my journey to the Puris the same day, but my guide was attacked with pains in his knee, and could not ride further. I had, therefore, no resource but to alight at the priest's, who gave me a hearty welcome. He had a pretty good house, immediately adjoining the church. 10th of October. As my guide was worse, the priest offered me his negro to replace him. I thankfully accepted his offer, but could not set off before one o'clock, for which I was, in some respects, not sorry, as it was Sunday, and I hoped to see a great number of the country people flock to the mass. This, however, was not the case, Although it was a very fine day, there were hardly thirty people at church. The men were dressed exactly in the European fashion. The women wore long cloaks with collars, and had white handkerchiefs upon their heads, partly falling over their faces as well. The latter they uncovered in church. Both men and women were barefooted. As chance would have it, I witnessed a burial and a christening. Before mass commenced, a boat crossed over from the opposite bank of the Paraibi, and on reaching the side, a hammock, in which was the deceased, was lifted out. He was then laid in a coffin, which had been prepared for the purpose in a house near the churchyard. The corpse was enveloped in a white cloth, with the feet and half the head protruding beyond it. The latter was covered with a peaked cap of shining black cloth. The christening took place before the burial. The person who was to be christened was a young negro of fifteen, 
who stood with his mother at the church door. As the priest entered the church to perform mass, he christened him, in passing by, without much ceremony or solemnity, and even without sponsors. The boy, too, seemed to be as little touched by the whole affair as a newborn infant. I do not believe that either he or his mother had the least idea of the importance of the rite. The priest then hurriedly performed mass, and read the burial service over the deceased, who had belonged to rather a wealthy family, and therefore was respectably interred. Unfortunately, when they wanted to lower the corpse into its cold resting place, the ladder was found to be too short and too narrow, and the poor wretch was so tossed about, coffin and all, that I expected every moment to see him roll out. But all was of no avail, and after a great deal of useless exertion no other course was left but to place the coffin on one side and enlarge the grave, which was done with much unwillingness and amid an unceasing volley of oaths. This fatiguing work being at last finished, I returned to the house, where I took a good déjeuner à la fourchette in company with the priest, and then set out with my black guide. We rode for some time through a broad valley between splendid woods, and had to cross two rivers, the Paraibi and the Pomba, in trunks of trees hollowed out. For each of these wretched conveyances I was obliged to pay one new haze, two shillings and two pence, and to incur great danger into the bargain, not so much on account of the stream and the small size of the craft, as of our mules, which, fastened by their halter, swam alongside, and frequently came so near that I was afraid that we should be every moment capsized. After riding twelve miles further, we reached the last settlement of the whites. On an open space, which had, with difficulty, been conquered from the virgin forest, stood a largish wooden house, surrounded by a few miserable huts, the house serving as the residence of the whites, and the huts as that of the slaves. A letter which I had brought from the priest procured me a welcome. The manner of living in this settlement was of such a description that I was almost tempted to believe that I was already among savages. The large house contained an entrance hall leading into four rooms, each of which was inhabited by a white family. The whole furniture of these rooms consisted of a few hammocks and straw mats. The inhabitants were cowering upon the floor, playing with the children, or assisting one another to get rid of their vermin. The kitchen was immediately adjoining the house, and resembled a very large barn with openings in it. Upon a hearth that took up nearly the entire length of the barn, several fires were burning, over which hung small kettles, and at each side were fastened wooden spits. On these were fixed several pieces of meat, some of which were being roasted by the fire, and some cured by the smoke. The kitchen was full of people, whites, puris, and negroes, children whose parents were whites and pudis, or pudis and negroes. In a word, the place was like a book of specimens containing the most varied ramifications of the three principal races of the country. In the courtyard was an immense number of fowls, beautifully marked ducks and geese. I also saw some extraordinarily fat pigs and some horribly ugly dogs. Under some cocoa palms and tamarind trees, were seated white and colored people, separate and in groups, mostly occupied in satisfying their hunger. 
some had got broken basins or pumpkin gourds before them, in which they kneaded up with their hands boiled beans and manioc flour. This thick and disgusting-looking mess they devoured with avidity. Others were eating pieces of meat, which they likewise tore with their hands and threw into their mouths alternately with handfuls of manioc flour. The children, who also had their gourds before them, were obliged to defend the contents valiantly, for at one moment a hen would pack something out, and at the next a dog would run off with a bit, or sometimes even a little pig would waggle up and invariably give a most contented grunt when it had not performed the journey for nothing. While I was making these observations, I suddenly heard a merry cry outside the courtyard. I proceeded to the place from which it issued, and saw two boys dragging towards me a large dark brown serpent, certainly more than seven feet long at the end of a bast rope. It was already dead, and as far as I could learn from the explanations of those about me, it was of so venomous a kind that if a person is bitten by it, he immediately swells up and dies. I was rather startled at what I heard, and determined at least not to set out through the wood just as evening was closing in, as I might have to take up my quarters for the night under some tree. I therefore deferred my visit to the savages until the next morning. The good people imagined that I was afraid of the savages, and earnestly assured me that they were a most harmless race, from whom I had not the least to fear. As my knowledge of Portuguese was limited to a few words, I found it rather difficult to make myself understood, and it was only by the help of gesticulations, with now and then a small sketch, that I succeeded in enlightening them as to the real cause of my fear. I passed the night, therefore, with these half-savages, who constantly showed me the greatest respect, and overwhelmed me with attention. A straw mat, which, at my request, was spread out under shelter in the courtyard, was my bed. They brought me for supper a roast fowl, rice and hard eggs, and for dessert, oranges and tamarind pods. The latter contained a brown, half-sweet, half-sour pulp, very agreeable to the taste. The women lay all round me, and by degrees we managed to get on wonderfully together. I showed them the different flowers and insects I had gathered during the day. This doubtless induced them to look upon me as a learned person, and as such to impute to me a knowledge of medicine. They begged me to prescribe for different cases of illness, bad ears, eruptions of the skin, and in the children a considerable tendency to scrofula, etc. I ordered lukewarm baths, frequent fomentations, and the use of oil and soap, applied externally and rubbed into the body. May heaven grant that these remedies have really worked some good. On the 11th of October, I proceeded into the forest, in company with a negress and a puri, to find out the Indians. At times, we had to work our way laboriously through the thicket, and then again we would find narrow paths, by which we pursued our journey with greater ease. After eight hours' walking, we came upon a number of puris, who led us into their huts, situated in the immediate vicinity, where I beheld a picture of the greatest misery and want. I had often met with a great deal of wretchedness in my travels, but never so much as I saw here. On a small space, under lofty trees, five huts, or rather sheds, formed of leaves, were erected, eighteen feet long, 
by twelve feet broad. The frames were formed of four poles stuck in the ground, with another reaching across, and the roof of palm leaves through which the rain could penetrate with the utmost facility. On three sides these bowers were entirely open. In the interior hung a hammock or two, and on the ground glimmered a little fire under a heap of ashes in which a few roots, Indian corn, and bananas were roasting. In one corner, under the roof, a small supply of provisions was hoarded up, and a few gourds were scattered around. These are used by the savages instead of plates, pots, water jugs, etc. The long bows and arrows, which constitute their only weapons, were leaning in the background against the wall. I found the Indians still more ugly than the Negroes. Their complexion is a light bronze, stunted in stature, well-knit, and about the middle size. They have broad and somewhat compressed features, and thick, coal-black hair, hanging straight down, which the women sometimes wear in plates fastened to the back of the head, and sometimes falling down loose about them. Their forehead is broad and low, the nose somewhat flattened, the eyes long and narrow, almost like those of the Chinese, and the mouth large, with rather thick lips. To give a still greater effect to all these various charms, a peculiar look of stupidity is spread over the whole face, and is more especially to be attributed to the way in which their mouths are always kept opened. Most of them, both men and women, were tattooed with a reddish or blue collar, though only round the mouth, in the form of a moustache. Both sexes are passionately fond of smoking, and prefer brandy to everything. Their dress was composed of a few rags, which they had fastened round their loins. I had already heard, in Nova Friburgo, a few interesting particulars concerning the Puris, which I will here relate. The number of the Brazilian Indians at the present time is calculated at about 500,000, who live scattered about the forests in the heart of the country. Not more than six or seven families ever settle on the same spot, which they leave as soon as the game in the neighborhood has been killed and all the fruit and roots consumed. A large number of these Indians have been christened. They are always ready, for a little brandy or tobacco, to undergo the ceremony at the shortest notice, and only regret that it cannot be repeated more frequently, as it is soon over. The priest believes that he has only to perform the rite in order to gain another soul for heaven, and afterwards gives himself very little concern, either about the instruction or the manners and morals of his converts. These, it is true, are called Christians, or tamed savages, but live in the same hidden manner that they previously did. Thus, for instance, they contract marriages for indefinite periods, elect their caciques, chiefs, from the strongest and finest men, follow all their old customs on the occasion of marriages and deaths, just the same as before baptism. Their language is very poor. They are said, for example, only to be able to count one and two, and are therefore obliged, when they desire to express a larger number, to repeat these two figures continually. Furthermore, for today, tomorrow, and yesterday, they possess only the word day, and express their more particular meanings by signs. For today, they say day, and feel their head, or point upwards. For tomorrow they again use the word day and point their fingers in a straightforward direction, and for yesterday they use the same word and point behind them. 
The police are said to be peculiarly adapted for tracking runaway negroes, as their organs of smell are very highly developed. They smell the trace of the fugitive on the leaves of the trees, and if the negro does not succeed in reaching some stream in which he can either walk or swim for a considerable distance, it is asserted that he can very seldom escape the Indian engaged in pursuit of him. These savages are also readily employed in felling timber, and cultivating Indian corn, manioc, etc., as they are very industrious, and think themselves well paid with a little tobacco, brandy, or colored cloth. But on no account must they be compelled to do anything by force. They are free men. They seldom, however, come to offer their assistance, unless they are half-starved. I visited the huts of all these savages, and as my guides had trumpeted forth my praises as being a woman of great knowledge, I was here asked my advice for the benefit of every one who was ill. In one of the huts I found an old woman groaning in her hammock. On my drawing nearer they uncovered the poor creature, and I perceived that all her breast was eaten up by cancer. She seemed to have no idea of a bandage, or any means of soothing the pain. I advise her to wash the wound frequently with a decoction of mallows, and in addition to this, to cover it over with the leaves of the same plant. I only trust that my advice procured her some trifling relief. This horrible disease, unfortunately, does not appear to be at all rare among the Pudis, for I saw many of their women, some of whom had large heart swellings, and others even small tumors on the breast. After having sufficiently examined everything in the huts, I went with some of the savages to shoot parrots and monkeys. We had not far to go, in order to meet with both, and I had now an opportunity of admiring the skill with which these people use their bows. They brought down the birds even when they were on the wing, and very seldom missed their mark. After shooting three parrots and an ape, we returned to the huts. The good creatures offered me the best hut they possessed, and invited me to pass the night there. Being rather fatigued by the toilsome nature of my journey on foot, the heat, and the hunting excursion, I very joyfully accepted their proposition. The day, too, was drawing to a close, and I should not have been able to reach the settlement of the whites before night. I therefore spread out my cloak upon the ground, arranged a log of wood so as to serve instead of a pillow, and for the present seated myself upon my splendid couch. In the meanwhile, my hosts were preparing the monkey and the parrots by sticking them on wooden spits and roasting them before the fire. In order to render the meal a peculiarly dainty one, they also buried some Indian corn and roots in the cinders. They then gathered a few large fresh leaves off the trees, tore the roasted ape into several pieces with their hands, and placing a large portion of it as well as a parrot, Indian corn, and some roots upon the leaves, put it before me. My appetite was tremendous, seeing that I had tasted nothing since the morning. I therefore immediately fell to on the roasted monkey, which I found superlatively delicious. The flesh of the parrot was far from being so tender and palatable. After our meal, I begged the Indians to perform one of their dances for me, a request with which they readily complied. As it was already dark, they brought a quantity of wood, which they formed into a sort of funeral pile, and set on fire. 
the men then formed a circle all around and began the dance. They threw their bodies from side to side in a most remarkably awkward fashion, but always moving the head forwards in a straight line. The women then joined in, remaining, however, at some little distance in the rear of the men, and making the same awkward movements. They now began a most horrible noise, which was intended for a song, at the same time distorting their features in a frightful manner. One of them stood near, playing upon a kind of stringed instrument, made out of the stem of a cabbage palm, and about two feet or two feet and a half in length. A hole was cut in it, in a slanting direction, and six fibers of the stem had been raised up, and kept in an elevated position at each end, by means of a small bridge. The fingers were then used for playing upon these as upon a guitar. The tone was very low, disagreeable, and hoarse. The first dance they named the Dance of Peace or Joy. The men then performed a much wilder one alone. After providing themselves for the purpose with bows, arrows, and stout clubs, they again formed a circle, but their movements were much quicker and wilder than in the first instance, and they likewise hit about them with their clubs in a horrible fashion. They then suddenly broke their rank, strung their bows, placed their arrows ready, and went through the pantomime of shooting after a flying foe, uttering at the same time the most piercing cries, which echoed through the whole forest. I started up in a fright, for I really believed that I was surrounded by enemies, and that I was delivered up into their power, without any chance of help or assistance. I was heartily glad when this horrible war-dance came to a conclusion. After retiring to rest, and when all around had gradually become hushed into silence, I was assailed by apprehensions of another description. I thought of the number of wild beasts and the horrible serpents that might perhaps be concealed quite close to me, and then of the exposed situation I was in. This kept me awake a long time, and I often fancied I heard a rustling among the leaves, as if one of the dreaded animals were breaking through. At length, however, my weary body asserted its rights. I laid my head upon my wooden pillow, and consoled myself with the idea that the danger was, after all, not so great as many of we travellers wished to have believed. Otherwise, how would it be possible for the savages to live as they do, without any precautions, in their open huts? On the 12th of October, early in the morning, I took leave of the savages, and made them a present of various bronze ornaments, with which they were so delighted that they offered me everything they possessed. I took a bow with a couple of arrows, as mementos of my visit, returned to the wooden house, and having also distributed similar presents there, mounted my mule, and arrived late in the evening at Aldeia do Pedro. On the morning of the 13th of October, I bade the obliging priest farewell, and with my attendant, who by this time was quite recovered, began my journey back to Nova Friburgo, and, in this instance, although I pursued the same road, was only three days instead of four on the way. On arriving, I found Count Berthold, who was now quite well. We determined, therefore, before returning to Rio de Janeiro, to make a little excursion to a fine waterfall, about twelve miles from Nova Friburgo. By mere chance, we learned that the christening of the Princess Isabella would take place on the 19th, and, as we did not wish to miss this interesting ceremony, we preferred returning directly. We followed the same road we had taken in coming, 
till about four miles before reaching Ponte de Pinheiro, and then struck off towards Porto de Praia. This road was thirty-two miles longer by land, but so much shorter by sea that the passage is made by steamer from Porto de Praia to Rio de Janeiro in half an hour. The scenery around Pinheiro was mostly dull and tedious, almost like a desert, the monotony of which was only broken here and there by a few scanty woods or low hills. We were not lucky enough to see the mountains again until we were near the capital. I must here mention a comical mistake of Herr Basque of Nova Friburgo, which we at first could not understand, but which afterwards afforded a good deal of amusement. Herr Basque had recommended us a guide, whom he described as a walking encyclopedia of knowledge, and able to answer all our questions about trees, plants, scenery, etc., in the most complete manner. We esteemed ourselves exceedingly fortunate to obtain such a phoenix of a guide, and immediately took advantage of every opportunity to put his powers to the test. He could, however, tell us nothing at all. If we asked him the name of a river, he replied that it was too small and had no name. The trees, likewise, were too insignificant, the plants too common. The ignorance was rather too much. We made inquiry and found that Herr Baske had not intended to send us the guide we had, but his brother, who, however, had died six months previously, a circumstance which Herr Baske must have forgotten. On the evening of the 18th of October, we arrived safely in Rio de Janeiro. We immediately inquired about the christening, and heard it had been put off till the 15th of November, and that on the 19th of October only the Emperor's anniversary would be kept. We had thus hurried back to no purpose, without visiting the waterfall near Nova Friburgo, which we might have admired very much at our leisure. On our return, we only came eight miles out of our way. End of section 7